Romans 10, 1 through 13. Read this with me together in unison. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before You this morning, gathered as Your people, opening Your Word, we ask that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that You would illumine our minds to the truth of this text, that these words would become perfectly clear to our minds, to our hearts. Let them bear into our conscience and give us deep conviction. And may we see Christ and Your grace and Your work of salvation for what this text reveals it to be. May we rejoice. May we turn from any self-righteousness to Christ and His righteousness. And may You be glorified in this today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. What is the most important question that you could ever ask yourself? I think a lot of people may ask this question thinking that it's very important, something like, um, how can I be happy in life? Maybe people ask that question and pursue it without really realizing that they are. Other people might view the question, how can I be successful in this life? That may be to them the most important question. How can I enjoy this life to the fullest? And any variation of those questions that you may consider, I would say that those aren't the most important questions you could ask. I think that the single most important question that you could ask is, how can I be right with God? That will determine, or how you answer that question, will determine where you spend eternity. 
And I think I have good reason for saying these things the way I do because that's what the Bible teaches very plainly. How can I be right with God? How can I know that I will stand before God and then at that moment, because we all will one day, how can I know at that moment that I will inherit eternal life? It's a common question that people ask, especially at points of crisis. Several of us yesterday were at a funeral together, and we mourned, we grieved over the loss of a dear brother. But we had great confidence and hope that he is with the Lord. He stood before God, and God counted him as righteous. How does that happen? That's the question that we need to answer from this text today. It's a question among every religion, right? Among religious people. How can I be right with God? How can I stand right before God? I mean, if you think about that day when every human being dies and we stand before God and He looks upon our lives, He looks at us and would ask the question, why should I cause you to inherit eternal life? What would you say to Him? That's the most important question. And as I've said, having the right answer to that question, according to the Bible, is the difference between being eternally in heaven with God or being eternally in hell away from the love of God. And so, this question, and this is why this text is such a burden on our hearts, this question is often agonizingly answered in the wrong way. Let me tell you a story from the Bible. Jesus came to a rich young man, most likely a ruler in the religious community of the Jewish day. And this rich young ruler came to Jesus and said to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asked Jesus that most important question. And Jesus answered him, by saying, first of all, why do you call me good? Jesus was probing his heart to see who he thought Jesus was. But also he said, well, if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to keep the commandments. You have to keep all the commandments. And the man said, well, yeah, I have. I think I've kept them all. And Jesus said, there's one you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you will find eternal life. Now, here's the point. Jesus wasn't teaching that young man that he was capable of doing that because no one is. When you ask yourself this question, do I, from the moment I began to breathe to this very point, have I loved the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength more than anything else? That's what Jesus was asking that. Do you love God more than your stuff? And you know what the response of the young man was? He was sad. He couldn't couldn't measure up. And so he went away from Jesus without eternal life. That young man asked the most important question. 
And he got the answer fatally wrong. He thought he could do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus led him to the law of God to bring him to the right answer, which would be, I can't do that. Jesus said, that's why Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, in other words, those who think they're good and have the ability to inherit eternal life by what they do, they don't need a Savior. But those who know that they're sick, spiritually poor, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Those who know that they have nothing, no ability to do God's commands perfectly. Those who know that they are they're sorrowful over their sin. This young man went away still thinking that his own goodness and ability to keep God's laws and rules, the Ten Commandments, was how he could stand before God perfect, good, and inherit eternal life. And that is, if we're honest, that's the same state of thinking that grips so many people today. We'll call those people religious people, okay? So many people think that they can stand before God righteous or with a right status, a right standing, and inherit eternal life by their own goodness. By their own goodness. By their own ability to keep God's rules. Generally, they will admit, if you talk to a religious person that we're describing, generally they'll admit some sin and mistakes, right? Yeah, I sin. I make mistakes. But it's my hope that by the time I stand before God, that my goodness, the good things I've done, will, will outweigh the sins and the mistakes that I've made. That's their hope. But that's the fatally wrong answer. To the question of how can I stand right before God? How will I inherit eternal life? So what's the right answer? What's the right answer then? If that's the wrong answer, what's the right one? And that's what our text is about today. In our text this morning, Romans 10, 1-13, the Apostle Paul has a huge burden on his heart. He's very concerned for his family members, the Hebrew people. In fact, that's what he says there in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. And if you were to look into Romans chapter 9, you would know that the them he's referring to is his, his Hebrew family. His brothers according to his lineage. And these are some of the most religious people that you could ever meet. I mean, they, they memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. They kept laws to try to keep laws. The Jewish people made up like 600 laws to try to keep the Ten Commandments in some way. These were religious people. And yet, he's so concerned for them because they were answering the question, how can I be right with God? They were answering it incorrectly. Just like the rich young man. And because they were answering it wrong, Paul the apostle here is in mental and emotional agony over them. He says, my heart's desire, my heart is grieved, I'm burdened, I'm overwhelmed, and I'm constantly praying to God for them that they may be what? Saved. Rescued from the, from the judgment of God. From the wrath of God. They're religious, but they need to be saved. 
And so that was his prayer for them. So what's the right answer to the most important question? How can a religious person, or any person for that matter, stand right with God and inherit eternal life? Here's the main point of this whole text. And you can see it right at the top of the notes that I've given you in your bulletin. Here, here's, here it is in a nutshell, and, we'll, and then we'll describe it from the text. Renounce your own righteousness by law and receive God's righteousness by faith. That is the heart of salvation. You have to say no to all that self-effort, self-righteousness, and accept God's gift of righteousness by faith. That's what Paul's going to describe for us in clear detail this morning. So let's look at it together. How can we do that? How can someone come to the place, how can any of us come to the place where we renounce our own righteousness, our own ability to keep the law, and receive God's righteousness by faith? Well, there's three vital truths you have to understand in order to get there. Let's look at them. Number one, the Apostle Paul tells us, your zeal is misinformed. That's verse 2 here. Paul says, I bear them witness. He's still talking about his Jewish family, his Hebrew family. We're very religious. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. Religious people can be very zealous for God. Nobody's saying, right? Paul isn't saying that religious people aren't zealous for God. They have strong desires for God. Paul observed this. Yeah, I bear them witness. I've seen it, Paul says. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That religious zeal begins with a knowledge of God. Maybe someone grows up in a family where the Bible is read. Maybe they go to church and they hear about something about God and some of the first things you hear when, you, when you're under religious instruction about God is that God is a creator. And so He's all-powerful, and He's all-wise, and He's all-knowing, and He's everywhere present. But then you also learn that God is holy. He's sinless. And He's an infinitely good being. He cannot sin. And He's a judge. He, because He loves His creation, and He loves His own glory, He must be a good judge, and therefore respond rightly to sin. Well, that puts us in a dreadfully um, fearful position. And from that, we... We get a sense of guilt, and that's how religious zeal is fueled. We have a sense of guilt. We know, well, God is good, and He knows all things. And he's a perfect judge, and He's righteous and holy, but I'm not. I know I've sinned. I know that He knows me for who I am. And then that, that zeal for God is then fanned, fanned by a sense of fear. Well, if I am not good and I am sinful and God is a righteous judge who will punish sin, then I don't want to feel that punishment. I don't want to be judged by God and then, and then punished by Him. So then that zeal for God burns with the desire to somehow be at peace with God, right? This is the process that religious human beings go through. I want to be right with God. How can I be right with God? How can I know? And unfortunately, the most common response is from religion, well, you need to be righteous and you need to do that for yourself. You've got to try hard. You've got to try hard to be good enough for God. 
religious zeal spends great effort on gaining a right standing or a righteous status before God. Now, what do they do to try to get that? Well, the Apostle Paul is, is very, very familiar with these things as well. One, because he knew his Jewish, his Jewish family. In fact, Luke chapter 18 describes one of the Hebrew religious leaders. And, it, and here's what this religious, religious leader prayed to God. And you can listen as I read Luke 18, 11, and 12. Here's, here's some lists of what a zealous religious person may try to do to be right with God. The Pharisee, there's a Hebrew teacher, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That was that Pharisee's hope for being right with God. First, things that he didn't do. I hope God will accept me because I'm not, I don't embezzle funds. I don't commit adultery. I don't do things that are unjust. So I think, uh, well, here, what do I do? I, I, I pray, I fast, I go to church, I give money. I... So his hope, for being right with God was entirely based on these sorts of things. Not what he doesn't do, what he, what he does do, and hopefully that will outweigh his mistakes. Well, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to these things. He himself lived that same life. Paul was a Pharisee. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if that's the way we're going to go. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, his own his own doing, his own righteousness, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite. I even know the tribe I came from, the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a strict law keeper. As to zeal, Paul was zealous. He was even so zealous, he persecuted other Christians in order to please God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one could look at Paul and say, aha, you are a lawbreaker. He worked so hard. Is that how people are made right with God? That's the fatal flaw. All of us as human beings are so bent toward taking that course. There's a fatal flaw. Paul says this religious zeal makes great personal efforts to stand right with God, inherit eternal life. But he says, look, look at it. But that, that zeal is not according to knowledge. That's why he says to us, number one, your zeal is misinformed. What, are they, what is the religious zeal doesn't know about? What, what is it that they don't know that they're misinformed about? They don't understand righteousness. That's the heart of it. You don't understand righteousness. How hard it is, actually, to be right with God. Religious zeal does not understand many truths about God's righteousness, human righteousness, Christ's righteousness. 
truths that are absolutely, absolutely essential for his salvation. And that lack of knowledge, that misunderstanding, that misinformation, that ignorance, like Paul calls it, is a fatal flaw. That's what's so urgent about this. So let me ask you, dear friend, if you're here today, do you have a zeal like Paul is describing? Is that where you are? You, you've felt, you, you have some knowledge of God. You've felt a fear of God. You've felt some guilt in your heart. You, you have a desire that you want to be right with God. You want to inherit eternal life. And your answer up to this point has been, I'm going to try harder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outweigh, I'm going to try to, when I stand before God, I'm going to try to outweigh my failures, my mistakes, my sins with the good things that I do. And hopefully, God will give me enough information and wisdom to do those good things. And when I stand before Him, He'll accept me. Has, is that who you have been up to this point? Please think about that. If you have a zeal for God like that, Paul says, you're without some knowledge that you need to know what salvation really is. And it's important for you to hear this and understand this. I urge you and I plead with you this morning as you hear this text, please take it to heart. Please think through these things carefully. What is, what is Paul going to tell us about this righteousness? Well, that's what number two is about. Number two this morning, he wants you to know, and I want you to know that if that's the way you think, your ignorance of righteousness is deadly to you. It is eternally deadly to you. And, and, and neither Paul nor I am saying this to insult you, if that's where you are. That's not what this is about. My heart is filled with tears on this, as Paul's is. We're saying this because we love you and we long for you to be helped and saved. That's what we want. Think about it in terms of every other, uh, so many different things that we, we deal with in the world. If you had cancer that could be easily cured, but you didn't know it, what would actually be killing you? In that case, what's actually killing you is your ignorance, right? Because you could just take the cure if you knew, if you understood, and if you didn't push it away. That's the idea here. Paul gives us the knowledge to be saved. It's plain. It's right in front of you. So let's hear it. Verses 3 through 5. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, now we're getting some information about, we're getting the knowledge we need about this righteousness. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. All right, here is the knowledge we need about righteousness in order to be saved. First, let's get this verse, verse 3, the fatal flaw that we've been talking about that causes many religious people to enter eternity without Christ is stated in that first half of verse 3. Look at it. Or the second half of verse 3. They seek to establish their own 
and do not submit to God's righteousness. First, they do not submit to God's righteousness. What we're going to see here in just a moment is that this righteousness that God wants to give to those who believe in Him is a gift, not something to work for. And because they, they don't know, they don't know that, the right religious person doesn't know that, they try then to establish their own righteousness. In other words, they try to be good enough. They try to figure out ways in themselves that they can keep God's law. And therefore, as a result of that, they don't submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they don't submit themselves to receiving God's righteousness as a gift. These two phrases, they don't submit to God's righteousness, they seek to establish their own, described the condition of Paul's Hebrew family, and it describes many religious people today. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a perfect standing before the law of God. That's what it is. Perfection with the law of God. God's righteousness is that perfection when, that He gives as a gift. Our own righteousness is when we try to measure up by our own doing. That's what it means to seek to establish our own and not submit to God's. So why won't religious people renounce their own righteousness and receive God's righteousness? That's where the ignorance comes in. The first thing they're ignorant of is they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you realize this? This is what we're talking about when we say God's righteousness. God desires and delights to declare you right with Him. Apart from anything you do, entirely by His gift of grace, if you will trust Him to do so and refuse to continue working for it. That's the first piece of knowledge you have to have. Did you know that that's true? God wants to declare you righteous legally. Even though you don't earn it. He wants to say, you are righteous. He delights in that. It's a gift. Not something you work for. But you have to stop working for it in order to receive it. And that's the way it's always been from the beginning of human sinfulness. God declares sinners righteous by faith, not by works. God delights in declaring sinners righteous by faith alone so that they can come into eternal life because of what He has done, not because of what they have done. Romans 4, this is the way it was all the way with Abraham at the very beginning. What shall we say Abraham gained by or what shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh for if Abraham was justified or made righteous declared righteous by works then he's got something to boast about but what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not as counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God delights in saying, stop working to be good enough and receive by faith the righteousness 
that I will credit to you. That's the way Abraham was made righteous. That's the way David was made righteous. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 says the same thing. Listen to it. Yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous with God by works of the law, but through faith, trust in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, by trying to be good enough, no one will be justified. That's how it works. So the first thing, The first piece of knowledge that a religious, zealous person needs to know is that they can be made righteous from God, not by their work. God will declare them righteous by faith. But here's another piece you have to know, the second piece that they're ignorant of. They're ignorant of the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So now this righteousness from God gets more specific. How can God just declare people righteous? That's really the question. Because I hope as you heard that earlier, like, well, how does, how does God just declare people righteous? It's all because of Christ. Let me tell you what I mean or what Paul means. You have to understand first the purpose of God's law. Most people, when they look at the law of God, they think, well, those are the rules I have to keep in order to be right with God. That's not the purpose of the law. That's not it. What's the purpose of the law then? To point you to Christ. That's why the text says Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. The law points you to Christ. Because it shows you you can't keep God's law. Did you know that God is always asking us and commanding us to do things that we cannot do? From the very first command to the very last of the Ten Commandments, we cannot do them. And that's why He gave us Christ. Because Christ gives us those commands. He did and could keep them. The law was never meant to make sinners right with God. It was only meant to show sinners how sinful they are and point them to Christ. Can you think of commands that you have kept? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you always worshipped and loved God more than anything else? Have you ever desired something that was not your own? We're breaking God's commands left and right. And Jesus took them even further and He said, if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery with them already. If you've hated someone sinfully, it's the same as murdering them. We can't keep these commands. But Christ did. He kept them for us. The law cannot make sinners right with God. It simply points us to Christ. And Christ not only kept the law... In our place, that's why he lived here 30-something years. He perfectly obeyed God's law in the place of sinners who could not, but he also took our punishment upon himself. That's why he died. He took the guilt of our law-breaking, and he took the punishment that that law-breaking deserves on the cross. That's what the cross was about. The cross wasn't just a good example of love. 
The cross wasn't just God saying to us, I love you. The cross was literally God crediting to Jesus the sin of sinners and then punishing Jesus with the death that that sin deserves. That's why he died. So that those who then trust in Christ can walk free and inherit eternal life because they're both forgiven and declared righteous. See, that's what Christ came to do. Christ is then the end of the law for righteousness. So he brings us to the end of trying to be good enough. And if we trust him, he makes us righteous. Now, who is that available to? What does it say? Everyone who works for it. No. It's everyone who believes. You trust in Christ. It's like nothing you've ever trusted in before. Have you ever started to fall out of a tree and grabbed hold to a branch or something? It's like, this is my lifeline. If I don't hold on to this, I will injure myself severely. I will die, right? That's the way it is with Christ. In fact, he holds on to us as we trust him. If we do not have Christ's righteousness, we don't have a prayer as we stand before God because our righteousness will not hold up before his gaze. Christ is the end of the law, and that's true for everyone who believes. Anyone can believe like this if you desire to. There's no, one, there's no other earthly uh, qualification. You trust in Christ. You reject your own righteousness or attempts at it. You seek to turn away from your sin. You trust in Christ. God says, you will then stand righteous before me because I see you as righteous as Christ is. You will inherit eternal life because Christ earned that eternal life by His perfect obedience. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now there's a third thing that, that religious zealous people are often ignorant of. Not only are they ignorant of the righteousness of God that He wants to declare is theirs, they are ignorant of the person and work of Jesus Christ to provide that righteousness that God would give to them. But then verse 5 tells us that religious zealous people are often ignorant of the true requirement of the law. Look at verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is a quotation Paul is making from Leviticus 18 and verse 5. And it's simply the, the clear demand that God says, okay, here's, here's the law. If you want to take, if you want to get eternal life and right standing with God, the way of the law, here it is. Keep the law perfectly and you'll live forever. Fail the law in any point and you will die. That's why God said the wages of sin is death. That's why he told Adam in the beginning, if you, if you take of the tree, you will on that day surely die. Why? Because God's good. He is just. He won't overlook any sin. That's the way it goes if you want to take the way to eternal life by the law. You have to keep the whole law of God perfectly. 
in the heart, in every action, all the time. And there's only one of us that could have ever done that. Who was it? Jesus Christ. None of us. I can't. I, I would invite anyone here this morning who has felt like they have loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength from the moment they began to believe to the present to stand up and tell us how you've done it if you have. Not one of us can. That's the truth of it. And that's what verse 5 brings us to. If you want to inherit eternal life by something you do, then you've got to do it all. But if you're willing to accept righteousness by faith, in the person of Christ, God will declare that to be yours. Now, here's the application of it. Can you see what the religiously zealous for God is ignorant of? God wants to give righteousness. God wants to give it through Christ. And there's no way any of us can have our own. Have you up to this point been religiously zealous like Paul has described? Has that been you? Please be honest with yourself if it is. Because today you could be saved and know the joy of being justified and made righteous. But you have to admit that first before you can receive Christ's righteousness. You have to reject your own self-righteousness. Renounce your own righteousness by law. Receive God's righteousness by faith. Okay, finally, you may ask then, well, if I cannot gain righteousness by works, then how do I gain righteousness by faith? And that's what Paul goes to next. This is our last point this morning. Number three, your salvation is attainable. You can be saved. Here's what Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith, ah, that's a different story, isn't it? That's not righteousness based on law. That's not righteousness based on your doing. This is righteousness based on faith. This is God's righteousness. This is the, God, this is the righteousness He provides through Christ. Now, this righteousness has something to say to you. I love how Paul personifies this righteousness by faith. It stands up and it's going to tell you something that you need to know. First, it says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? And don't say in your heart, who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? What does this righteousness based on faith say? It says this, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is, this is the best news ever. Here's the good news. Righteousness based on faith is attainable to you. That is attainable to you. Righteousness, self-righteousness based on law is not. But this is. It's accessible. It's so amazing what Paul says here in verses 6, 7, and 8. He has this interesting wording. Maybe you've never wrestled through this language before. Righteousness based on faith says, don't say this. right? Don't say in your heart, 
Who's going to ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Who's descended into the abyss to bring Christ up? The words near you, in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, well, let me say this first. First, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from an Old Testament text. And it almost says identical in many ways. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6 Moses writes, God is speaking, do not say in your, or Moses is speaking, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. <laughs> Here's the point. God was telling his people Israel that they shouldn't say that they were going to enter into the promised land of Israel by their own goodness. So that doesn't work. That's impossible. Paul, by this text, is then telling you it will not be by your own efforts that you will stand and inherit eternal life and stand righteous. So don't even say it in your heart. It's only by faith that this is so. And then Paul starts quoting from Deuteronomy 3 or Deuteronomy 30, and he says, For this command that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far away. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the seas that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God in that text, again, Old Testament, was compelling His people Israel that they had no excuse for not receiving and responding to his word because they had already, he had already given it to them graciously. They knew his word. They had heard his word. He had, they had spoken his word. It was right in front of them. You see it? It's, it's even, he says, it's in your mouth. It's near you. In your mouth. It's in your heart. The work of salvation was already done. They only had to receive God's word by faith. And so Paul takes that text and he applies it to us and he says this, righteousness based on faith alone and Christ alone is accessible to you. The eternal son has already come as a man. Look at this, how he says here, don't say we've got to do this great thing to be saved. We've got to do this great thing to be righteous. We've got to bring Christ down. No. <laughs> we've got to bring Christ up from the dead. No, that, that's already done. That's the point. Everything's done already for you. That's why Jesus came. He came and lived. And He died. And He rose. There's nothing left to be done but what? Believe. All the righteousness has been accomplished. It's very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. The word of faith. You have to receive it. You have to believe it. You have to trust that Christ has already done it all. It's complete. Righteousness based on faith says to you that this word of the gospel is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. Respond to it by faith. 
See, how can you do that? Verse 9, verse 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is, saved, and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, if, if Christ, if I don't need to do anything, Christ has already been brought up from the dead, Christ already came down and lived and died, rose, and it's all done, I just have to believe this and confess it? Here's the point. Believe as a result, and as a result, you will confess this to be true. It's something internal first. That's what belief is. Belief, first of all, is being convinced that you can gain righteousness from God simply by faith because Christ has done it all. There's something internal that the Spirit of God will ignite in your heart through the word of the gospel. And there's something external that will not be, you'll not be able to contain. It's like two sides of one coin. You'll believe in your heart and it'll come out your mouth. The same response, one in the heart and one come out through the words. Two acts of faith, one in the heart and the other is the proof. What do you have to believe? Notice what it says. First, believe that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Boy, that's, that's a statement right there. There's a confession. Jesus is Lord. You know what he's saying? Jesus is Yahweh God. The same God in the Old Testament, that's who Jesus is. The name Lord you see in the Old Testament is the very name of God, Yahweh. That's Jesus, the Son of God who became human flesh and lived a perfect life and died in our place and rose again. Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. That Jesus completed everything necessary to save us. That He lived, He died, He rose. And you know, we have to be careful. To, you know, this belief... And this confession, we have to be careful not to turn it into another work, right? Well, as long as I just check off these boxes, I'm going to do this and do this and I'm saved. No, it's about the work of the Spirit in the heart to give you a confidence in Christ's righteousness and not your own because He accomplished everything needed for salvation and you turn from self to trust in Christ. And if you truly believe in Christ and are resting in Him, to be right with God and gain eternal life, you won't be able to help but confess it as Lord. You'll confess it when you're baptized. You'll confess it when you go from daily, day to day at work. You've got to confess Jesus. He's your Savior and Lord. You'll even confess it under persecution. And if that happens, your heart, in your heart and from your mouth, God says what? You will be saved. There's a future aspect to that, isn't there? You will be saved. That's looking ahead to the day when you stand before God. If you receive Christ's righteousness, rejecting your own, and all that He did when He died and rose again, God says when you stand before Him, one day you will be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be righteous. You'll have eternal life. You'll be spared the future judgment of God. And God says you will be justified now 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right now, declared righteous by God, rescued from God's wrath. And you know what? In these last few verses, Paul takes away your excuses and mine. First, he says, righteousness based on faith is dependable. Look, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's really something to think about. Because sometimes when people who have, who have worked their whole life, they thought, well, I'm going to try to be good enough and keep all these rules, and I've got to be active in this, and if God's going to save me and declare me right, and they think, all I have to do is trust in Christ? Are we sure about this thing? It doesn't feel like it's right, because I'm not doing anything. Well, you are trusting in what Christ has already done for you. Is that going to hold up on the day of judgment? God says it will. He says you won't be ashamed. You will not get to that day and God will look at you and say, well, you trusted in my son. That wasn't good enough. That's not going to happen. You won't be ashamed. He will say, welcome. I see you as I see my son. I love you as I love my son. You trusted in him. He saved you. It's dependable. And it's even here, you get the hint, it's for everyone who believes in Christ. He's quoting from Isaiah 28.16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone. That's Christ. A precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, you won't be gathering your things together to get out of there because you made a big mistake. It's going to be sure. And then, you know what? This righteousness based on faith is universal. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on Him. Do you ever get the thought in your mind like, God can't save me. I'm too sinful. Or for any other reason, I'm too poor. I'm too whatever. I I don't match this category. The Apostle Paul sweeps all human categories out of the way. There's no distinction here. Ethnicity, gender, age, economic, social status, no earthly distinction is a condition. The only condition is you must come in faith alone and trust in Christ alone. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And, And if you will come and believe on Him, Christ will give you His saving riches, His grace, His forgiveness, His eternal life. Everyone who calls on Him, who calls out, that's a phrase that speaks of a desperate call for salvation. Help me! I'm drowning! God says, "I I will save that one. And finally, righteousness based on faith is critical. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from Joel chapter 2. And that, that quotation is speaking of the final day when the Lord returns. And he says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape the judgment of God, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2, 32. 
So this is urgent. There's nothing more urgent than this. This is the answer to the question, how can I be right with God? Renounce your own righteousness by law. Receive God's righteousness by faith. This word has taken all away all of your excuses. You see it now. Now you have the knowledge. You can walk through this text again and see what true righteousness is. And so if you remain in your ignorance and continue to seek to pursue righteousness by works, that's no longer just ignorance. It's rebellion against God's Word. Don't reject the Word of the Gospel that is now right in front of you. It's in your heart. It's in your ears now. It's in your mouth. Don't go away like that sad young rich ruler. Please don't do that. If you will come to Christ and rest in Him alone, God promises to rescue, from, rescue you from His eternal wrath. And He will give you eternal life instead. He will credit to you His righteousness. So I urge you today, in the place of God, in the place of Paul, I urge you, be reconciled to God. Renounce your own righteousness and take God's righteousness by faith. And now is the best time for that. Now is the day of salvation. Think of the words of that old hymn. Have you, did you know the words to the hymn Rock of Ages? Well, there's lots of people that know that hymn. We sing it and sing it. You ever paid attention to that second or third verse? Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. That's exactly what this text is talking about. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. You are of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That's, that's the work of Christ. He makes us righteous and he removes the wrath of God through his cross. And so your response must be to rest, to believe, to confess this is truth. If you would like to know more about this righteousness through faith today and how you can be saved, please come and talk with me afterwards. I'm going to be out in the foyer. I'd love to to meet you and help you with this or to put you with someone who can. And my dear brothers and sisters, some of you here listening are like Paul. You've already are in Christ by faith with a righteousness not your own. And as you've been listening to this, you've been rejoicing in the righteousness of God because you've already received it by faith. And so receive this text again with me today with a fresh, invigorated faith that cries out like Paul, oh, the depth, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you are resting in Christ, you are righteous. And like we sang earlier, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There's going to be a day with that ransomed in glory when you will at last see his face. And you have you have no shame because you'll be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And it'll be our joy to sing through the ages of His love for us. There's not one person who will stand in heaven on their own doing. And so, my brothers and sisters, keep standing on that gospel. Even even when maybe someday you will have to continue to stand when someone demands that you declare, declare allegiance to somebody else. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one says, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Let that declaration fill your heart now and always. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the righteousness of God that is by faith in Christ. It is our delight. We pray that it would be our greater and greater joy because of your goodness. Please stir our hearts that we would never rest in our own doing, our own righteousness, or to cease if we are and receive the righteousness that you provide through faith. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for living in our place and dying in our place and rising in our place. We pray all of this with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus. Amen.